Well, I said last week I wanted something a little more robust than the traditional Advent themes of peacefulness and deep breathing and hanging mistletoe over doors or whatever. The lectionary did not let me down. Flip to the back page of your bulletin inside the back cover. That's our dude. There he is, John the Baptist. He looks a little, little anemic in that painting, I think. Um, and, he, and he may well have been, actually. That may be a, a historical uh, representation. According to legend, this is a guy who primarily subsisted on bugs and on wild honey. Uh, that's not exactly part of this complete breakfast, but somehow that is a diet that gave John the strength he needed to, do, to get up every morning and do what needed to be done. He didn't shave. He didn't cut his hair. He probably didn't smell all that great, although he did spend a lot of his time in the middle of a river, the Jordan River, which is a muddy river, baptizing his followers into what the gospel writer Luke calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a lot of big churchy language right there. And many of us may be in that phrase, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe we hear echoes of a, a kind of call for personal, personal morality. But the kinds of sins that John was likely to uh, have been most, most concerned about are probably not the sins that first jumped to our minds. Before John was a religious figure, he was kind of regarded as a, a freedom fighter who saw his people suffering under the yoke of Roman oppression. John was a pastor's kid, he, or a priest's kid in his case, a Jewish priest's kid. His father Zechariah was one of the priests in the Jerusalem temple. We assume that John grew up steeped in the tradition of Hebrew scripture. He probably had a crackerjack Jewish education. And Zechariah gave his son some pretty powerful marching orders. They got remembered and recorded as the Song of Zechariah, which the choir sang just a moment ago. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. John and his father Zechariah knew this prophetic tradition in Hebrew scripture. It's a tradition that stretched back seven or eight hundred years before John's birth. And that was a tradition that was actually all about the end of the world, this tradition that spoke of a God who did not will God's people's enslavement at the hands of foreign powers, but promised to set them free from the hands of their enemies, as the, as the canticle sing. So John put two and two together. He hide it off to the wilderness, the domain of the doomsday prophets of old. He proclaimed that the ultimate liberation that God had promised for generations was finally now at hand. Get ready for God to act, John said. Come and, and join the movement that is forming in opposition to the forces of violence and coercion that Rome represented for first century Jews. John was in the business of training a kind of spiritual warrior, he was recruiting members for the Gang of God, if you like, a kind of guerrilla movement that sought to undermine the forces of oppression and build something different in its place that looked a little bit more like the peaceable kingdom that the prophets had been preaching for centuries. For John, the salvation that was on offer looked like freedom. It looked like a, a foretaste of the freedom from oppression. And John believed that, that that foretaste of freedom could be yours if you joined the, the baptizer movement and started working along him towards its aims. His warrior band maybe looked a little bit cultish to our sensibilities. His, his followers were a little bit socialist sometimes for our, uh, for our tendencies. They gave up their property. They renounced their family ties. They followed John into the wilderness and set up this alternative society there off the grid, off the map. These were not establishment-type folks 
who were used to running things, they were mostly like fringe people, right? They were the weirdos and the misfits, the criminals and the ne'er-do-wells, people with little to lose, frankly. There's a reason that, that Jesus of Nazareth later got a reputation for hanging out with prostitutes and sinners. Those were the people that were his compadres when he was growing up young and up-and-comer in the movement. These were the, these were the warriors alongside whom Jesus trained. Because John was, was a lot more than a prophet. He was a, a movement leader, a firebrand, a political activist, a community organizer. He was what, uh, what the management consultant Margaret Wheatley has termed a warrior of the human spirit. Margaret Wheatley says, warriors of the human spirit are people who have the courage to face the dark forces threatening our world, to grieve for what is being lost, and to undergo a program of rigorous training in order to serve as a leader who can embody a different possibility, a different way forward. And figures like that, Wheatley writes, arise in certain historical times when culture is under threat, when protection and preservation of people and values and ideals becomes critical. Margaret Wheatley believes that we are living through a time like that today, in, in the present tense, when the human spirit is threatened and oppressed and ignored and reviled. And she says, why now? Why is, this, why is this happening once again? And she believes, and many historians believe, it's because we are entering what she calls the end point of our global civilization, enacting a pattern that is already well-established in history, the process that befalls every complex society at the end of its life cycle. Margaret Wheatley is not a doomsday prophet. She's not a religious nut. She's a Buddhist, actually. Uh, she's a secular management consultant. She's a researcher who works with the National Park Service and consults with the U.S. military. But like John, she's reading the signs of the times, and she's predicting that things are going to get worse before they start getting better. That's the bad news. That's actually the, the, the bad news that doomsday prophets like John were delivering in their time with great relish. Uh, they, things are going to get worse before they start getting better. There's a general principle at work there in the fall of empires. Luke gives us John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth, two figures who are profoundly shaped by their historical context, right? That's why Luke names this list of famous men in order to introduce John and Jesus. Emperor Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and Philip, and Lysanias of Abilene. Nobody really knows who that is. But the other guys, we know who they are, right? They're the rich and powerful rulers of the time. That's how Luke introduces John and Jesus, into the world of power into which they are born. The movement that they form, John first and then Jesus, is a movement that starts its life as a profoundly political movement, right? It's about freeing people from first century wage slavery and Roman oppression. But the Jesus movement soon transcends the specific historical issues to which it was responding. It becomes this broader and more expansive message of hope for oppressed people around the world. And at the same time, it became an effective tool of enforcement for powerful people to use against their enemies. Christianity speaks both sides of that coin, right? It became at the same time a tool to legitimate empire and also one of the most powerful critiques of empire and power that the world has known. This is a movement that gives sanction to war and to violence and also makes possible a different kind of warrior, a gorilla of grace, if you like, warriors of the human spirit who gave their lives in these early days over to the movement in a, in a radical act of conversion. They called it baptism. 
They committed themselves to this rigorous form of training so that they were prepared to step into utter cultural chaos, into the, the cataclysmic shift that was the decline and fall of the great and powerful Roman Empire. They stepped into that shift with grace and compassion and love because that is what they had been trained to do. Because empires are going to rise and fall. Cultures are going to shift and change. Powerful political dynasties will come to an end, sometimes with a bang, sometimes with a whimper. There is nothing about human power on earth that endures, however majestic and inevitable it may seem. That, that's what the prophet Isaiah was talking about several thousand years ago when he wrote of this, this highway through the desert that was going to bring the people of Israel back from exile. Isaiah wrote, every valley will be exalted, every mountain and hill will be brought low. And he is not talking about landscaping, right? He's talking about power. Isaiah is talking about empire. Valley is a, is a Hebrew word with some very specific sets of connotations. Remember the, the valley of the shadow of death, right? When a Hebrew ear heard the word valley, they know we didn't mean a peaceful place of green grass, right? Valleys mean darkness. Valleys mean pain and suffering. The valley of Hinnom, the, the, the veil of Hades, right? Valley is a synonym for hell in Hebrew, in Hebrew poetry. And that is the place in Isaiah's vision that God is lifting up. God is exalting. God is pulling it up to the surface so that it can be navigated safely. You don't have to, you don't have to dig your way through the muck anymore, Isaiah says, because hell itself is being brought up into the light so that you can walk through it and not be burned. And there's another, there's another aspect to this way-making that Isaiah is talking about. The high places, right? The mountains and the hills that are being pulled down. Mountains and hills are Hebrew symbolism for power and control, right? That's, they represent the, the governments, the foreign kings, the powers that often sort of surrounded Israel, invaded it, threatened its safety. The powerful are pulled down from their thrones. The dark places of suffering are brought up to the surface. That's Isaiah's vision of a level highway through the wilderness. That's the, the great reversal that overthrows all the normal scripts about how authority usually works. The crooked and corrupted ways are made straight. The rough and wayward ways are made plain. And when that happens, Isaiah says, all flesh, right? Everyone, nations and peoples and kingdoms and languages, everybody together sees the salvation of God. And until everybody sees it together, it is not the salvation of God. That's the reason John the Baptist is gathering people at the banks of the Jordan River and dunking them into its muddy waters. The Jordan River is a not very nice place to get baptized. It's kind of filthy. Um, but people are flocking to him, right? Because they sense that John is onto something. This is not about, you know, getting people to confess what miserable offenders they are so that they can earn their way into heaven, right? John's baptism was about inviting you to experience a kind of radical solidarity with the other members of this, this fledgling movement of warriors, the ones who had been saved, the ones who had been redeemed, yanked out from the jaws of death and set apart for a, for a different purpose. These were the ones who had gone down into the water of death itself, into the valley of the shadow, into the vale of Hinnom, and had come back up singing. 
They were the twice-born. They were the the born again, the redeemed. For John, baptism was not about sin in the way that we think about sin, right? All the bad stuff we do. Baptism was about turning from like the existential sins of isolation and the myth of self-determinism, the notion that in a world that maybe is going to hell in a handbasket, I should like hoard as much as I can, get as many toys as I can in my own little pile, build the highest wall I can to keep out the darkness, right? Baptism was about counteracting those survival techniques and finding and claiming an alternative community, joining the movement and committing yourself to a cause. Change your life, right? That's, that's all that repentance means. Change your life. Renounce your collusion with an empire that thrives on division and enmity and start working as a part of a different kind of community, an alternative way of being in the world. I mean, that, that's not a religion. That's a movement. That's a movement for change. Some of us have started to think that maybe the times that we're living in require a movement that maybe starts to look a little bit more like that. I mean, maybe the church has been a a little sleepy for the past couple centuries. In America, Christians have had a lot of power, a lot of privilege. We have not needed to be a movement because we've been an institution, and institutions and movements do not go easily together. This cathedral was built as a testament to a a certain kind of power and prestige. And those days are over now, or at least they're, they're beginning to wane. I mean, we don't do communities of monolithic sameness anymore, communities where everybody looks the same and thinks the same and loves the same. And I think we can, we can honor the legacy, we can treasure the memory of the ones who built this place, even as we look clear-eyed and honestly into the future and realize that 2050 is not going to look like 1950, nor should it. The world is ending, and the apocalypse is upon us. And John the Baptist suggests that times like this require new movements, new ways of organizing. Margaret Wheatley writes, you have it on the cover of your bulletin this morning, there is no power, there is no power greater than a community discovering what it cares about. She says, ask what's possible, not what's wrong. Keep asking. Notice what you care about. Assume that many others share your dreams. Be brave enough to start a conversation that matters. Talk to people you know, talk to people you don't know, talk to people you never talk to. Be intrigued by the differences you hear. Expect to be surprised. Treasure curiosity more than certainty. Invite in anybody who cares to work on what's possible. Acknowledge that everybody's an expert about something. Know that creative solutions come from new connections. Remember that you don't fear people whose stories you know. Real listening always brings people closer together. Trust that meaningful conversations can change your world. Rely on human goodness. Stay together. Stay together. Last week, I invited you onto this Advent wilderness road, this highway through the Advent darkness. So this week, I offer you John the Baptist's guide for getting through the the dark places, the mucky places. And it's just this. Find the people who are doing work that matters to you. Because the time for looking to governments and politicians for our salvation and our future is done. Right? No government is going to save us. People of faith have known that for millennia. The prophets have always held out this vision of a different 
kind of community, a community of people who are finding their way back home from exile and are in the process of like building this road in the wilderness so that more people can find their way back home too. We need one another if we're going to make it out of the darkness alive. Salvation, as this tradition understands it, salvation is not an individual thing. Right? It's not something that I do in a closet alone with Jesus. Salvation happens in community. It happens in a room like this one. So here's the second tool in your end-of-the-world survival toolkit, right? Find people who are doing work that matters to you, and when you find them, stick together, because there's no power in this world that can overcome a community of people who have discovered who God is calling them to be and then is moving in the direction that God is calling them to go.